Almighty God, who so loved the world that, he gave, that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, pour into our heart that most excellent gift of love by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, that we may delight in the inheritance that is ours as your sons and daughters, and live to your praise and glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Um, we're just going to wrap up the Lord's Prayer section today. I know two weeks ago was the last time we did catechesis out of the catechism, uh, but we're just going to really wrap it up and, and do it rather quickly because I don't think there's a whole lot left. Um, we're going to just talk a little bit about a rule of life. We had mentioned it uh, earlier two weeks ago, um, but a, a rule of life is best described as, as a kind of uh, trellis for the spiritual life. It, it, it tells you which way is up. Um, it, it, and it guards you against um, just sort of lying on the ground and rotting. Um, it's, uh, it's an incredible tool, um, and, and that's one of the things that, uh, that uh, we really do need. Um, so let's ask that question, 252. Why do you need a rule of life? I need a rule of life because my fallen nature is disordered, distracted, and self-centered. Because bad habits often rule my life, I need to establish godly habits that form Christ-like character. Um, my fallen nature is disordered, uh, meaning that it's, it's scattered, right? Um, uh, you know, is it, have you ever noticed that when your life has some order to it, everything seems to work better? I mean, I've noticed this re recently. If I, can, if I can just take a Friday and clean out my garage and clean and vacuum my car, I'm so much happier on Monday and ready to go. Have you noticed that? If I can uh, organize my closet, just everything works better. Um, we get disordered. We get mucky and we get clouded. We get distracted as well. Um, we, live in a, we live in an age of distraction where multiple things, multiple uh, media sources, multiple uh, material goods vie for our attention. Um, and, and some of those things are winning, sadly. I mean, our cell phones are taking up, in many cases, seven or eight hours of our time a day. People spend looking at these things. Um, we also become self-centered. We become uh, narcissistic. We think about ourselves and ourselves alone. Um, a rule of life can solve a lot of that by bringing order to the chaos. That's the first thing, is to say, um, you know, if, if I reach a Friday and I know that I need to clean out the garage and I know that I need to uh, organize my closet and I know that I need to vacuum out the car and pull all the trash out of the back seat, uh, then I'll do it if I have it written down. And I say, on this day, I'm going to put it on my schedule. That's what's going to happen. Then I will do it. Um, if, I'm, if I've got lots of things vying for my time and I schedule time for this thing, this one thing, then I'll do it because nothing else will get in the way of that. Um, it's an amazing thing that happens when you say, for instance, and most of you have done this, it's going to church on Sundays for us is not optional. Um, it's going to happen every Sunday. Um, married couples often struggle with this. They get married, and then they're trying to merge their two sets of priorities, and then, then they find, like, oh, gosh, now we have to together make this commitment that this is what we're going to do. Um, but it's an important thing. Um, and a rule guards against self-centeredness because we recognize in a rule uh, that um, we don't live for ourselves. Um, we live for God. We live for others. Um, and, and having a rule that orders us and, and teaches us which way is up is really helpful. Um, and it builds good habits. Um, 
you may have heard this in the past that, that you have to do something for, for 30 days in order to get it to sink in and happen. So your dentist will tell you, you haven't been flossing. <laughs> and you'll say, no, yes, I haven't. They'll say, you need to do it for a month. And, you know, think as you leave the door of your house every, every morning, did I floss? And as you get into bed, think, did I floss? And then you'll start doing it. Um, but you have, to, you have to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to engage in this bad habit anymore. I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to do it. And then you find that, that you'll start to take it on as a, as a real habit and it will stick. Um, and these godly habits form us not merely to be people with good habits, but in Christ-like character. So, having asked this, now we turn to, uh, this is a bit of a, this is a section that uh, to many has been a little bit uncomfortable because the catechism thus far has not really laid out much that is explicitly Anglican. Um, you may know this, that Anglicans don't really claim to be the be-all, end-all of Christianity. We don't claim to, like, speak for the whole church. Um, but here we talk about something very specific, which is what an Angl- Anglican rule of life is. So I'm going to ask that question. What is the Anglican rule of life? The church invites me to its life of common prayer as a rule of life. That rule is a key part of a life of witness, service, and devotion of my time, money, and possessions to God. Okay, this, the church invites me to its life of common prayer. Um, this idea of common prayer, and eventually uh, in the pews here at Christ Church, when we get this thing wrapped up, uh, we will have a book of common prayer, two or three or four in every pew. Um, and that word common doesn't mean sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of commonplace. That's not what it means. It means that it is, it is held in communion. We pray as a, as a common people who hold this life of prayer in common. Um, and this lays out for us a rule of life. Um, so uh, through the years, I've taught people this and say, well, you know, if you really want to get to the basics, to the, the bare basics of a, of a rule of life, um, it's really this simple, and we talk about this in question 255, but it's three things. It's weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions. Um, if you can have a rule of life that starts with that as a foundation and you build on top of that, um, you've got a very good basis. We're going to say more about that as time goes on. But this lays out pretty clearly, right? What are you going to be doing with, your, with the very first hours of your week on a Sunday morning? You're going to be in church. Um, it's weekly communion. That's, that's the rule. So there it is. I'll be there. And if I don't make it on that Sunday, what am I going to do? Oh, I love this one. If you're sick, what do you do? Because it's in your rule, right? So you got to keep it to the best of your ability. You call me. <laughs> it's an amazing thing that happens. You call me and you say, I didn't receive communion today. And you know what I have to do because I've, I've vowed to do this? I have to show up at your house with communion. I'll bring it to you. And that's great. It's a wonderful thing, right? So you, you don't even have to worry about that. Um, and if for some reason you missed because you're traveling or because something got in the way and you were doing something else that was important, and by the way, you know, if, if somebody in your family is sick, you should take care of them and stay home, okay? Don't, don't come here and, like, leave your little kids at home because there's more important priorities. That's not, not good. Um, but it's to say, um, if something gets in the way, well, that's why we have a Wednesday service. So you come to that. You take your lunch and you, you come. Um, it also says very clearly, uh, you know, when you're on vacation, find a church to go to. Um, so this is, this is at the basis of that. Um, and it... And here's what it does. It trains up our witness as Christians, right? Think about this, this idea of a trellis. It, it says, where, where do those devotions go? 
they go up. And if, and if on a plant, the plant grows upward and it knows what way is up, what happens? It's fruitful. But so often we're so distracted and we don't know which way is up um, that, we, that we wind up lying on the ground and things rot. It also trains our service, um, meaning that, uh, well, I remember when I was a Boy Scout, you remember they teach Boy Scouts, you know, you've got to do your good deed for the day, <laughs> and, uh, and this, is, this is like an essential part of rule of life uh, for, for a Boy Scout, and, um, and you know, it's amazing just how much as a little boy, I actually like deeply thought about this, you know, I was like, I've got to do something good for the day, and I would, I would sometimes be going to bed, and I would think, haven't done anything today. What can I do? And I would ask my mom, like, what can I do? She said, well, you can set up coffee for tomorrow morning. And I would say, great. And so I became the, like, 10-year-old kid who set up coffee every night for his parents. Uh, but, but you see, like, taking on these habits of service mean you'll do them and you won't do something else. And it will be, uh, it'll be really helpful to you. Um, and this is, this is, let me just say how radical this is. In a culture that is constantly avoiding personal responsibility... This is an immensely important thing. Um, I was actually, I've been listening a lot lately to Jordan Peterson and, and, uh, on podcasts, and, and he makes this point rather forcefully that taking responsibility for yourself um, and for your own life is a really powerful thing um, because then you won't be standing there with your life a mess and sort of criticizing the world and saying, well, if only, if only things were better in the world, then, then, my, then my life would be better. And, you know, the reality of it is that your life is about as good as you want it to be. Um, and, uh, and, and, and taking responsibility is, is a very important part of that. Um, and you can, you can change your life. Uh, you, have that, you have that power. Um, it also leads to a change in our devotion of our time. Um, if we block out certain portions and we say, from this time to this time... Every day, I'm going to pray. What happens? You do it, and other things don't get in the way. Um, after this summer and some spiritual direction, uh, I realized that not enough of my time was going to study and rest and, and personal prayer. So I got home from my, from my summer vacation, which as a family, we take more of a family retreat. Um, and, I, and I said, I've got to have a day where all I have to do is read and pray and, and, and think. And if I need rest, I get rest um, because I wasn't getting it because it's just the way, it's the way life is. And so I said to Christy, the administrator, don't schedule anything on Mondays anymore. If I can't meet with somebody Tuesday through Thursday in that whole vast amount of time that I've got for those three days, and I can maybe squeeze in a Saturday morning meeting or maybe, you know, have somebody onto the porch on Friday night, you know, I can, I can do that. But Mondays have got to be a retreat day for me. And, uh, and it's changed everything. Because on Mondays, I actually get to read books. I actually get to pray. I actually get to do all these things. And it's an amazing thing. Um, and I don't have to worry about which meeting I have to go to and which, uh, which, pers- which parishioner I have to, have to meet with. Now, granted, sometimes they're just, they can't be avoided. But, um, and that's re- also true of rule of life. <clears throat> a good rule will have enough, enough flexibility built into it so that when there's a real emergency, it can be broken. <laughs> it can be altered. Um, you can move things around. So that's important. Um, it also deals with money and possessions as well. Um, if you, if, as you craft a rule, and again, as I said two weeks ago, a, a rule of life is a very personal thing. Um, no two rules of life should look the same uh, because God has made all of us very different. And, uh, and so though they should have common uh, material in them uh, and common uh, things, 
um, they should be deeply personal. Um, and in fact, I would say this, as you try out a rule of life and as you get going through it, it will actually become more personal. Um, so a friend of mine, his, his rule of life is this simple, in addition to the Anglican rule of life, which is these threefold things. Um, he says, he sings Wesley hymns twice a day. <laughs> so he's memorizing like all the Wesleyan hymns, which is great. Um, and, and he confesses his faults as soon as they happen. And, uh, and, he, and he keeps a regular ministry of praying for people uh, that, that he doesn't stop. And, and this has become deeply personal for him um, to the point where, yeah, he's memorizing all these hymns and he sings them out loud in the car on his way to work. Um, amazing thing. Um, man, that'll get you going in the morning, better than a cup of coffee. Um, but it does deal with our possessions, does deal with our money. How do we use, and this is a question that everybody has to deal with, is how do we use our home? right? Is our home our, our space that belongs to us, and we hold on to it tight-fistedly? No, uh, you know, maybe have a rule that says um, on Fridays we invite people over to our house. Um, maybe have a rule that says if someone asks us to make room for hospitality for someone who needs it, we're going to do it. Um, a rule might say we're going um, to keep a room in our house, a guest room, completely set aside for hospitality. Um, and we're going to keep it clean and ready for that moment when someone needs it. And these are amazing things that will start to happen. Um, well, and it provides endless sources of, of meditation, right? Because you say, well, we, we make room in our home for the stranger, which means we make room in our life uh, for Jesus. Um, we know that this house isn't our own. It's for others. It's for God's use. Okay. Also, a rule of life should include a tithe. I'll just say that clearly. Um, a rule of life should include we tithe, I tithe, um, uh, and, or I'm working up to that over time. All right. What prayer should you memorize as part of your rule of life? After memorizing the Lord's Prayer, I should aim to memorize the liturgy, psalms, and other prayers and collects. So yes, we should memorize the Lord's Prayer. Most of you probably have. If you haven't, you can certainly devote some time to that. Um, you should actually, if you're preparing for confirmation, you should attempt to memorize the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Okay, so you got that. Um, but we should also seek to memorize the liturgy. Now, this can sound very, very strange to people. Well, why would I memorize the liturgy? You know, I'd, I want it to be meaningful. Well, the, the way for it to really seep into your mind is not to read it off a page or read it off a screen. The way for it to really get in is to memorize it. Um, most Christians have actually memorized the liturgy throughout history. Um, and uh, through the years, I've memorized these texts so that they are in my, they're in my very being. Um, uh, so it's, it's an important thing. It, it sort of sticks with you. Um, and... Uh, and Here's the thing. The spoken word is incredibly powerful. Um, uh, I was reading um, lately about this, uh, this class that was taught in the university where uh, the students were asked to memorize six cantos of Dante. Um, and, uh, and over time, they actually did it. And they found that the first one was really hard to, was really hard to memorize. It took about two weeks to memorize it. But they got to the point where they could memorize an entire canto in a matter of three hours. Um, because memorization works this way. It's a part of our brain that doesn't, that doesn't get exercised a lot. Uh, but the liturgy provides us with that weekly repetition. And I should say this as well. The morning prayer uh, liturgy 
and evening prayer, those things get memorized even faster because you're doing them daily. Um, so I noticed this at morning prayer with people at Christ Church. It's over, about a, over the course of about a year, if you do it every single day, five days a week, that prayer book starts to get set down. And you're reciting all the canticles, the creed, all the prayers from memory. Um, and it's a glorious thing um, because you're not fumbling around with a book trying to figure out, like, what page are we on? It's, 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 in, your, it's in your mind. Um, so that's, a, that's something I want to encourage you to, and, uh, and it should happen rather naturally. Um, yes? Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Not, nothing major. Nothing major is going to be altered. I mean, I'm already getting braced for this because it's going to be, to our Sunday morning liturgy, nothing will be different. I'm telling you that right now. So nothing will be different. We've made all the changes that need to be changed. There might be little slight things here and there, um, but you won't notice them. Um, for the daily office, it will be a little bit different in certain spots, and that's okay. Um, I'm already getting ready for this because I know that for about a year, I'm going to have to have a prayer book in front of me. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to knuckle down, and that's how it's going to be, and I'm going to carry that thing around. And, and after a year, it will, it will be there. Um, but you may notice, sometimes I'm at the altar, and I'll stumble over some of the words. And the reason I'm stumbling is that I had the liturgy memorized in three different rites prior to these new Anglican rites. And those old words, those hundreds-year-old words, um, are so in my brain I can't do anything but that. So I have to kind of actively think about, oh, this is different, so here it is, right? Um, but but if, if you just wound me up, I'd just spit it all out because I've, it's so, it's, I've been hearing these words since I was three years old. Um, so there you have it. Um, other prayers, collects, uh, should come to mind. By the way, if, if you ever have kids or you do have kids, this is a great tool. Um, kids love memorizing things. They're like little sponges. They soak up all this stuff, and then they'll spit it back out to you, and one day you'll be there like, kids, how did you memorize all this? And like, well, you've been doing it every night with us for this long, this amount of time. It gets in there. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've known people through the years who walked away from the church almost entirely, and they come back, and all of these prayers are still in their mind uh, because they can't, you can't shake it. Um, if as a little kid you memorized all these things, it'll be there for for the rest of your life. Um, and in many ways, it's those prayers that they first pick back up when they come back. It's like, okay, now I know this. This is familiar. Um, how can you cultivate a fruitful life of prayer? I can cultivate a fruitful prayer life by following the ancient threefold rule, weekly communion, daily offices, and private devotions. This rule teaches me when to pray, how to pray, and for what to pray so that I may grow to love and glorify God more fully. I love this. This last, last sentence is great. This rule teaches me when to pray, how to pray, and for what to pray. Okay, so if I was just to do as an exercise, all right, you all pray right now. Pray for something. I guarantee you the biggest thing that weighs on your mind right now whether it's your, your plumbing problem or the test you've got to take this week or uh, your, your family member who's sick or whatever it might be, that's going to be the first thing you pray for. I can just, you're, you already know what it was. Um, we do need to actually be taught, though, for what to pray um, because it's not immediately apparent. Um, and, and the daily offices and the Eucharistic liturgy provide us with that language. Um, I often think as I ascend up to the altar, I think, what would be the first words that I would say if it was up to me? Um, 
and it would not be anywhere near as good as blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, because it teaches me what to pray for. I wouldn't pray, um, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. I wouldn't say that, for sure. But it is what I need to pray. <laughs> and wiser people than me have taught me this. Um, and I never met them, but they've taught me this. Okay? Um, we need to learn how to pray. Um, so much of our posture is ridiculous when we try to pray on our own. Have you thought about this? Like, just think about it for a moment. You know, if, if I just told you, go into your house and pray, where would you go? Where would you sit? Would you sit? Would you stand? Would you kneel? Would you, what would you do? Um, liturgies teach us what to do and how to do it. Um, they cultivate these ways of doing things. So you may have noticed that Christ Church, we, we sit to hear the scriptures. This is a great posture for, being, for listening. Um, we kneel when we're making confessions, when we're, um, when we're uh, in the middle of the Eucharistic liturgy, we kneel, which is a great posture for attentiveness uh, and also for <laughs> humility as well. It builds humility. Uh, the rule also teaches me when to pray. Um, and I've found through the years that, that often people are plagued by this problem of if you don't really have a set time when you pray, you'll pray at any old time. And 10 o'clock is not a great time to pray. You know, 2.30, not a great time to pray. Not a great time to pray. Um, you know, also, 11 p.m., not a great time to pray. Okay? Um, and so, this is why morning and evening prayer are first thing after you get ready for the day, first thing before you close the day, as you close the day out of work. Um, and, in fact, I've told people through the years, you know, uh, like night nurses, well, how should I do this? Well, when you start your shift, right before you start your shift, morning prayer. Um, at the end of your shift, they'll say, it's at 2 o'clock, yep, evening prayer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, so there's a need to kind of do that because it, it trains us to know that we're starting the day in prayer, we're ending the day in prayer, now we're going to rest. Um, if you want to add the service of Compline at the end of the day, you'll also note that Compline is written out in such a way that um, it's easily memorized. There aren't any options, really. Um, there's no readings to look up or anything like that. Uh, and you can do this, and you can actually teach your kids to do it over time. Um, and so it's an amazing thing. Uh, but it's also crafted. I love this. It's crafted so you can do it when you're tired because there's nothing to think about. Um, and if, if it's easy to do when you're tired, you will do it. Um, so there you have it. Um, some of this may seem strange to you, and, and I understand that. So one of the things I want to encourage you to do is um, give it a shot. Um, Give it a shot, uh, either, and one way to do it is to do, to do morning prayer every day, um, right before you go to work, or before you start your day. So uh, with, with others here at Christ Church, we pray, uh, we pray morning prayer Monday through Friday at 7.30 in the morning, and you're welcome to come to that. Uh, it's going to be off for spring break, but you're welcome to come the rest of the time. Uh, wonderful opportunity for that. Uh, uh, if you start with morning prayer, then the key is to add evening prayer later. Um, if you want to try this, just start praying Compline every night before you go to bed. Um, and it might seem strange because you're saying, well, these, these prayers, I don't know them. I'm not used to it. I'm, I, I don't get it. I don't understand, like this whole common prayer thing. Give it a shot. Um, a, a friend tells a story that, that he had somebody like this who was saying, well, I really don't, I don't, I don't get it. And he said, well, what don't you get? He said, oh, how these prayers could possibly have anything to do with me. They're not personal. They're, not, they're just completely impersonal. And he said, try it for six weeks. 
Pray Compline every night. And at the end of those six weeks, this guy said, it was so awesome because those prayers became his prayers. And he started to own them. What we learn through this, and this is a really key thing, especially for us as individualized Americans, is we learn that we actually, what we possess as Christians is the common inheritance of the saints. That's a really important thing. Nobody actually has anything that belongs to them at the end of the day. Um, uh, and, you know, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, when, when everyone in the church had everything in common, right, um, yes, they were talking about possessions, yes, they were talking about their financial lives, um, but, but more than that, I think, I think the writer is telling us um, that, that they held their, their probably most important things, their spiritual gifts were held in common, their prayers were held in common, um, so it's an important thing. Okay, we have time to preview the Ten Commandments section, are you ready? All right, uh, let's just say, I wanted to say, actually I want to take a break for a little bit and just talk about the, the plan for confirmation. Um, confirmations will be held um, in the middle of April. Uh, it's the Sunday before Palm Sunday. The bishop will be here, God willing. Um, he's, his cancer has come back with a vengeance, um, so it's not good. Uh, but if he's able to be here, he'll be here. Um, and if we have to find some other bishop to come, then we'll do that. Or if we have to delay confirmations, then we'll just delay confirmations and it'll all happen at some point down the road. Um, but the plan is for it to be the, that fifth Sunday of Lent. Um, in preparing for confirmation, there are a couple questions that have been asked, and this was even asked over coffee this morning. So what's the difference between membership and confirmation? All right, let me lay it out. Membership in the church, according to Anglicanism and according to the church throughout time, has been that you're baptized. So if you're baptized, congratulations, you're a member of the church. Um, what we say about Christ Church is, if you want to be a member of Christ Church, simply put your baptism information on file, and you'll be on file as a baptized member. Okay? So there you have that. If, however, you'd like to be confirmed, and you'd like to both do putting your baptism information on, on file and sign on, which means that you're, you've, you've been through the catechism, um, Nothing gives you alarm or pause or says you ought not join this thing because you hate it or because um, you're, you have major problems that put your conscience into a tizzy, okay, so that's how it should be understood. Then, then you say, yeah, I think I'd like to be confirmed. I'd like to ask for this um, increase of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, and I'd like to, um, to do that. Um, and, and the way I will tell people this is that as a confirmed member of the, of the church, you have the prerogative to get involved in a, in a very deep way, which is like serving on a vestry, voting in parish elections. All those things are around. And, and the reality of it is that if you come with a, with a, with a prideful attitude that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take this church down, you know, uh, God, please don't join Christ Church. <laughs> like, please don't be confirmed. Um, but if, if your attitude is like, I've, I've found a home here, I love it, um, then by all means say, I'd, I'd like to be confirmed. And, and this comes out of a genuine devotion to Christ. It should come as saying, I, I want to dedicate my Christian life um, to God in a more full way, and so I'd like to, like to do that um, and ask for this outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this way. Um, and so I say simply, if you found alignment within this church body, then you say, okay, I'm in. And, um, and this makes a lot of things uh, very easy. So if you ever move to another town, I can just transfer you to the ACNA parish there, and, uh, and it'll be as if um, as it'll be a much easier thing. Um, so is that helpful? Uh, the way that you sign up is just simply let me know. You can send me an email. You can send Christy Butler an email, because what we're starting to do is form that list of confirmands 
for that for that date. Um, so there you have it. It's to be baptized. Go ahead. Uh, we that's it. This is it. This is the class. Yep. So what we will do is have a dinner probably shortly before that confirmation date. Um, again, that date is going to be in flux, and I'm just going to have to ask you to bear with me because it's just it's the nature of things. Um, but there will be a dinner, and usually at the and sometimes I'll have two two nights for that dinner. It's a very festive dinner. You're going to have to give up whatever Lenten devotion you took on for that night because uh, I because usually we've had it in, in Easter tide, and uh, anyway. You're just going to have to bear with it. Uh, <laughs> and probably what we'll do is we'll just have it on a Sunday night so you can, so it won't be a big deal and you can just, by the way, do you know this, right? Lent doesn't cover Sundays. It doesn't, Sundays don't count. Okay, good, good. Uh, if you, whatever Lent devotion you take on, consider it broken for Sundays. Um, the ancient rule of the church was you don't fast on Sundays ever. Fasting on Sundays by ancient Christians was considered a sin. <laughs> it was like, it was like saying, uh, you know, thank you, Jesus, for your death and resurrection. Now I'm going to go, like, fast. <laughs> it's like, no, every Sunday's feast day. You have to feast. So uh, we'll probably have it on the Sunday, um, that being the case. Okay, got it? Okay, go ahead. Oh, yes, of course. Well, these are, these are troublesome. Uh, you get some goodies, right? Like, uh, we get Feast of the Annunciation this year, March 25th. That's a good one. Uh, definitely mark that on your calendar. If you've given up chocolate, you can eat chocolate to your heart's content on that day. Um, and, and, you know, that's a great thing to feast. You know, the Annunciation is wonderful. Um, you know, usually what, what people will say is, oh, it's St. Patrick's Day, so let's take a break from land on that day. And I'm fine with that. Um, but, but really, this is left up to kind of personal discretion. You know, it's like... Um, but usually it's right in that kind of sweet spot is uh, the big feast days you keep and the other ones you just sort of let go. Um, got it. You know, and, and sometimes sometimes the Feast of the Annunciation winds up smack dab in the middle of Holy Week, which means it gets delayed for as much as two weeks, um, which is kind of painful because then it's in the middle of Easter and you didn't really get it. But if it's like this year, yeah, enjoy. <laughs> because here's the thing. I love this about, this is the great thing about the church year that just often gets forgotten. Um, fasting is important, but feasting is more important. This, this, this balancing of this trains us uh, to know that our life is not about the misery of fasting. Um, our, our life is trained towards enjoying the the, the feast of the blessed vision of God, okay? So, so and, it, and it, very often we become so kind of morose and, and carried over by all of these things. Like, oh, I'm such a sinner and I really need to fast. Um, sometimes I find that when I'm most kind of beating myself up, that's when God's saying, I love you. It's gonna be okay, you know, have a, have a piece of chocolate for crying out loud, you know? It's, it's just to say that I think we can become, we can become little Pharisees is the point. And, and the problem with the Pharisees is not that they weren't ardent in their devo- that they were ardent in their devotion because they absolutely were. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing more and more is that Jesus doesn't accuse them for he doesn't accuse them for being ardent in their devotion. What does he accuse them of? He, well, he accuses them of their priorities being out of whack. Right? They'll step over a dead body, right, because they don't want to be bothered with it because they want to stay pure themselves. Um, they'll walk right past the, the, the guy beaten and bloodied on the road. Um, they'll accuse him of healing on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is more important. You see the problem is the priorities are out of whack. Um, so, you know, 
take on a Lenten devotion, but don't be a Pharisee about it. You know, it's, it's that simple. Um, so there you have it. Okay. It's, and I would say this, especially if you're preparing for confirmation, great time to do some fasting um, or baptism, as the case may be. All right, let's turn to the Ten Commandments. I do want to give a little bit of this, um, this introduction because it's so, so rich. Um, and this, this, this subtitle, uh, if, you're, if you're reading along, this is part four. It's behaving Christianly, which I love these old, these old school ways of putting things. This is straight from the mouth of J.I. Packer, uh, who said, I want this to be behaving Christianly. I said, okay, Dr. Packer, you get, your, you get what you want. Um, but this is, a, this is actually a really good phrase. Um, Though we don't want to be Pharisees, right, I think we can agree that there is such a thing as Christian behavior. There is such a thing as how Christians ought to live. Um, And the New Testament speaks at length about these things. Um, There is a little bit in all of us that says, well, we don't want to be legalistic. And yes, 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 I agree. We don't want to be legalistic, right? Legalism says that by following moral command, we gain our salvation. Is that true? No, it's not true. But following Jesus as disciples will mean that we live our lives in a certain way. Do you see the point? Jesus is at the heart of the law, not the law itself. This is really important. Actually, this is is the day on which we read the transfiguration, right? Um, And that's the point of the transfiguration. Right in the dead center of it is, this is a reenactment of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And does Jesus say, hey, I've got some new tablets for you? No, I'm actually preaching my sermon now. Uh, it's, it's, it's like they have this vision, a temporary vision of the glory of Jesus. And that's it. It's all you get. Do you see the point? Um, and, 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 and God says, God speaks out of the midst of this cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Okay. So I would say this, and we'll, we'll continue on with the introduction, but, and I'm probably giving it all away. But, but a life of attentiveness to Jesus as his disciple means we'll live in a certain way um, because we're paying attention <laughs> um, because, because we don't want to be um, living at odds with him. Okay? All right, let's, let's start reading. In Jesus Christ, God calls us to respond to him in three basic ways. By grasping God's revealed truth about Jesus with our minds. So what section of the catechism is this? It's the creed section, yeah. Um, By prayerful communion with God in and through Jesus. So this is the Lord's Prayer section. And by doing God's will. Um, I love how this is put. Doing God's will is what is a part of this. Um, These three form, and I I love how this all lays out so beautifully in in catechesis. Um, You have creed, Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments. You might think about this as faith, hope, and love. Um, some people have seen the three transcendentals in this, uh, truth, beauty, and goodness. And I, I love how this keeps kind of going on. You can go on at it forever about this because for Christians, this is how we see the world is through this lens of Christian believing through the creed, through the life of Christian prayer, through the Lord's Prayer, and now through the Ten Commandments. Um, God's will is primarily revealed to us in Jesus' word and example, which are inextricably linked to the Ten Commandments and other moral instructions found in Scripture. Remember these words of Jesus, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them, okay? Um, So he doesn't sort of say, I mean, I I think if Jesus wanted to make a show of destroying the Ten Commandments, 
he would have made a show of destroying the Ten Commandments, right? Something like standing up on the temple and just throwing them down. Like, it's over, friends. Like, no more moral commands for you. Uh, and yet, what do we find in the, in the New Testament consistently? There is moral instruction in the New Testament. Um, and it's not because, and this is so important, it's not because we need moral instruction to be the people that God has commanded us to be. It's this. It's that obedience to Jesus has a content, and the content is as it's always been. Um, it doesn't change. Um, and in fact, it's, it's, the Christians have understood it this way. They've said, you know, if you try to obey the Ten Commandments by your own fuel, by your own power, by your own might, what happens? Total disaster. Total disaster in every case. If, however, you attempt by God's grace and in, and in loving obedience to Jesus to keep the commandments, what will you do? You'll keep them. Because here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And we should not be good, we should not be like Marcionites and say, but the Ten Commandments, surely they don't count as your commandments. No, 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 we don't get out that easy. The commandments are given by the voice of God through the Word of God and the Word of God incarnate. Um, uh, so, you know, don't, don't kind of say, well, clearly, you know, the New Testament supersedes the Old. It's like, no, it fulfills it. Um, so you have to be very careful about that. Um, God's will is primarily revealed to us in Jesus' word and example, which are inextricably linked to the Ten Commandments and other moral instru instructions found in Scripture. Catechetical instruction deals with the first aspect through teaching and learning the Apostles' Creed. It deals with the second through teaching and learning the Lord's Prayer. And it deals with the third by centering on the Ten Commandments. Uh, by the way, those Scripture references are really important. You should memorize this. Where can I find the Ten Commandments in Scripture? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. <laughs> I actually just ask my kids this on a regular basis. Where are the Ten Commandments in Scripture? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Okay, you, you, this will be really helpful. Um, which, are the, uh, which are the heart of the law of God that Jesus embodied in his own life and are summarized for us in the command to love God and our neighbor. The standards set by the law reflect values and obligations that are to some degree impressed upon the consciences of all people. So this goes to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Um, you know, Paul is quite clear that, that no one in the world is without excuse for the basic law of God. Because it's, why? Well, because it's revealed in nature. And I actually will tell you this. I believe that every, and I think the church has taught this throughout, throughout the centuries, that every human being is born uh, with a sense deep within them uh, that, that um, certain actions uh, have a moral weight to them um, and that some actions are on the face wrong. Um, we know this. Um, and, of course, this is what Paul teaches. This is what all the fathers teach. And, and it's only been lately, and I think this is really important. Father Jerry McDermott was talking about this last week. Uh, lately, with the advent of, um, of the theology of Karl Barth, that this has been lost. Um, because Barth basically holds there's no such thing as natural theology. There's no such thing as natural, natural, uh, natural theology or natural mor moral reasoning. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's an error. Um, yet God gave the law in a clear and unmistakable way to his chosen people, Israel. So Israel hears the law in a way that is unmistakable, um, and clear. There's no obscurity about the law as it's given. Um, 
delivering them from slavery in Egypt, he established a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai through Moses, giving them the law. Um, And this was a dramatic event in the life of Israel. We don't often think about it, but um, in, in, in the Exodus, and also in Deuteronomy, the people say, all of these commandments, we will do them. And then they're consecrated in the blood of bulls. Moses holds up a bucket full of blood and says, behold the blood of the covenant. Okay. Do you hear what's going on? <laughs> Are you, your mind's starting to work. Behold the blood of the covenant. And then he sprinkles blood on all the people, and they're, and they're basically uh, baptized and communed in this covenant in blood. Um, and in a covenant, what happens is that uh, you enter into this um, uh, exchange of persons, right? So here's what's happened. In, in, in the covenant with Abraham, Abraham says, um, I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay. Great, that's a good covenant. Um, it's, it's sacri- there's a sacrifice that goes on. Remember this with, the, with the, the torch moving among the pieces of the animals? Do you remember this? Um, in, in Moses, this covenant is brought um, uh, to another level, so to speak, although it doesn't abolish the first, as Paul says. Um, but it's taken to a new level, and the people are consecrated in blood. Um, uh, and in a sense, they're re-consecrated to God, and, and this law is, is at the heart of that. Um, in grateful response to his grace, Israel would worship and serve God, living as his people in accordance with his law. How well did that go? Read the Old Testament, it was a miserable failure, okay? It didn't work, uh, and it, it really did not work. Um, certain points, there's some revitalization of the law, um, for instance, under Ezra, um, but most of the time, failure. In a similar way, the moral teaching of Jesus Christ is universal, authoritative, and final. I love this. Universal meaning what? God doesn't sort of look at it and say, well, there are certain cultures where the teaching of Jesus is completely irrelevant, so they get a pass. No, this teaching is universal. Um, another word for that would be Catholic. Um, it's authoritative, meaning that um, Jesus speaks with absolute authority because he is the lawgiver. Um, and it is also final, meaning that uh, the law cannot be, and the law and, and Jesus' moral command cannot be expanded. Um, and I'd actually say that this is, this is a problem, actually, in the church today, is people will kind of pile on extra moral commands than what's there. Um, now, that's not to say that we can't understand Scripture more deeply, um, but it is to say that adding further commands on top of what's already there is, is always a problem. That's the work of the Pharisees. It is set in a family relationship with God the Father and established by His love and grace in Christ. It's a, listen to this. It's set in the context of a family relationship. This is actually something I'm learning as a father. I can have many rules as a father, like don't bang on that pane window glass because you'll lose a hand, uh, and I can make that rule over and over again. But if I don't communicate it as a father who loves his children, then it goes in one ear and out the other. So I have to take the child's side. I have to set them on my lap and say, listen, I love you, and I don't want you to have to endure pain. If you keep tapping on the glass, you're going you're gonna to cut yourself very badly, and I don't want that. You see? And then all of a sudden, it's like, the urge to tap on that glass is lost. Do you see? Um, because it's not just sort of an arbitrary, like, don't do that. It's, there's something more to it. 
It's also established by his love and grace in Christ. So it's not as though God is saying, uh, I'm commanding you to do all this stuff, but ha, 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 you're going to fail. Ha, 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 ha. What is it? I'm making the command, but I'm also giving you the grace um, and the love to do it. Um, and in fact, this is what the church has taught about grace throughout time. It's, grace is not just sort of like, you're a failure, so we're just going to sort of paper over that or cover over that or, or you know, have snowfall over it um, so you don't see it anymore. And we can all just say, like, I know it's still there, but, you know, you can't see it, so it's not, right? No, that's ridiculous. Uh, grace is this. Grace perfects our human nature. Junius isn't there. Junius would be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's stuff. Medieval theologians are like, yes, this is it. Um, because that's the truth. Grace actually perfects our mortal nature um, and, and brings, you know, our, our natures are bent or they're, they're broken, um, and, and grace restores us. Um, and this is actually, the out, this, is, this is founded in the outpouring of the love of God. Through the reconciling power of Jesus' cross, anyone who names him as Savior and Lord is freed from bondage to sin and death, adopted as God's child, and called to a life of holiness. Um, this is important. When, when a person becomes a Christian, they're granted, by God's grace, a whole new identity. This has often been so obscured in the modern world because we basically assume that everybody is a Christian and that uh, really people just need kind of encouragement to be a better Christian. Um, the reality of it, though, is probably best um, kind of given in the, in the ancient church where when you became a Christian, you got a new identity. In many ways, you got a new name. Um, there were people who were engaged in professions that as, a that as a catechumen, they could no longer have. So as soon as they became a catechumen, it was like, well, you're not going to do that anymore. You know? Oh, you work, in, you work at, the, at the amphitheater putting on plays. Well, you can't do that anymore. Um, oh, really, you, uh, you, know, you, you carve idols for a living. That's interesting. Well, if you become a Christian, you're going to have to give that up. You know that, right? Um, and, oh, oh, your name is a pagan name. Well, you're going to have to give that up. You see? Big deal difference. Um, adopted as God's child, freed from bondage to sin and death. I mean, this is what happens in baptism, friends. We are no longer held in bondage to sin and death, but freed from it. Um, um, now, you might say, but, but I still want to sin. Isn't that bondage to sin and death? Say, so, well, no, you've been freed from it. Um, and, and the fact that you're free does not mean you will always exercise your freedom appropriately. Um, but you still are a freed person. Um, and, of course, if you want to read more about that, Galatians is your place, right? Because he makes this delineation between the freed woman and the, and the slave woman and their, and their children. It's a very important thing to think about. But more importantly, at the end, called to a life of holiness. We're set apart through the sacrament of baptism. We are made new, uh, new beings through this uh, and, uh, and called to a life that is set apart, that is holy. The Christian life of holiness, in which obedience to Christ is central, is rooted in the, in the bond that believers have with the Son and the Father through the Holy Spirit. So the Christian life, we have to say this, is at its, is at its core Trinitarian. It's, an, it's a life of obedience to Christ. It's rooted in this relationship between the Son and the Father, this filial relationship, um, which is actually extended to us uh, through the grace of Jesus um, and empowered and given, given its power by the Holy Spirit. Um, therefore, keeping the divine law is a fundamental form 
of the new life into which we are brought by faith in Christ. I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. Following the teaching of Jesus, his apostles, like all the Bible writers, always look at the human individual as a whole. They see behavior as a fruit. So this is really important that we not get this wrapped up. We, we really are very tempted very quickly to say our behavior is who we are. Okay? So we say I, identity comes from what we do, right? So here's an example. Um, you, might, you might meet somebody for the first time, and what's one of the first questions you ask in small talk? Oh, so what do you do? Why? Because we're trying to get identity questions. We're trying to figure out who they are. Um, and so we ask, what do you do? Um, for the Christian, yeah, I think that's somewhat important, but we're really more concerned with who are you? Um, and so we look at the human being as a whole. Um, we don't look at, at action or behavior as something which is external or separate uh, from the heart and from the character. They therefore always speak of human behavior in terms that link behavior with motivation and purpose. And actually, this is an amazing line because, you know, the truth of it is that psychologists know this already. People don't act, by and large, in abstraction from their motivation and from their purpose, meaning essentially their meaning. People don't do this. They act in accord with where they find meaning, um, and they act in accord with where they find motivation. For Jesus, acts are only right insofar as the attitude of mind and heart that they express is right. The pages that follow reflect the same viewpoint. So we're going to begin talking about the Ten Commandments next Sunday. Um, I'd hoped to start earlier, but I think it's all going to work out quite nicely because we have five Sundays in Lent before uh, the bishop comes, and we will very likely be able to do two commandments a week, which will get us there. Um, we'll have confirmations, and then uh, on that last Sunday... Um, well, which will probably be uh, low Sunday. I will not be here um, for that Sunday, for the sun, first Sunday in Easter, or not Easter Sunday, but the following Sunday. Um, but I promise I'll come back. We'll wrap up the catechism. The catechism, by the way, begins in glory, an image of the glory of God and the human being, and ends in glory. And it's one of the, my, the sanctification section is my favorite section of the catechism. I love to teach it. Um, I, I will probably hand over some of it to Father Canary because we may not be able to get through all of it, uh, but it's going to be an exciting time. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll begin next week with the Ten Commandments.